So tonight I want to talk about the five aggregates. So when we talk about the five aggregates, we understand them as um, points of experience or containers of experience. The five aggregates are form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. So the aggregates, they come from the word khandhas in Pali or skandhas, which, mean, which means heaps. So they are heaps of experience that we have. And so the Buddha has categorized and delineated various modes or modalities of experiences through either the five aggregates or the four foundations of mindfulness, through nama rupa or mentality materiality, which is one and the same as the five aggregates, or through the six sense bases. You will see in various different suttas that the Buddha talks about these aggregates just directly as they are. In fact, in his uh, traditionally understood as his second discourse, which is the Anatalakana Sutta, the three uh, marks of existence or characteristics of existence are impermanence, dukkha or suffering, and the impersonal nature of things or anatta. And he takes these five aggregates as a way of understanding that all of this is impersonal not to be taken as me, mine, or myself. So, he also talks about it in terms of the sixth sense basis. So, for example, you have the eyes, so you have the form aggregate of the eye itself. You have the feeling aggregate of seeing. You have the perception aggregate of perceiving what it is that you are seeing. You have the formations aggregate of formations arising from the eye. And you have the consciousness aggregate in relation to the eye, so the uh, eye consciousness. Likewise with any of the other five sense bases. So this is what the Buddha gives as a discourse to Rahula, his son, which sets the course for Rahula to become an Arahat. So once you really look at five aggregates or the five aggregates as a, um, a process, an impersonal process, then you start to separate the idea of self in relation to all experience. So what is the form aggregate? The Buddha has talked about the form aggregate as gross or subtle, near or far, internal or external. So what does he mean by gross or subtle? When he says gross, he means the physical aggregate. And the aggregate can mean near or far, meaning it could be the aggregate that's this body, or the aggregate that's this table, or the aggregate that the, that's this lamp, or anything that is made up of different forms. If you see a clock, if you see a lamp, all of that is made up of the form aggregate. So a form aggregate is 
understood as that which is made up of the four great elements, in essence. So what are the four great elements? You have earth element, which is the solidity. You have water element, which is the, the ever-changing liquidity of something. Uh, you have the air element, which is the gaseous state, and then you have the fire element, which is the temperature of that particular form. So this form aggregate is, in essence, impersonal, right? It's subject to change all the time. If we take a look at our eyes, if we take a look at our body, if we take a look at our ears, nose, tongue, even the brain or mind, it changes all the time in every single moment, dependent upon contact. So because of that contact, a little bit of it is degraded over time, which means that it is impermanent, subject to passing away, subject to change, and it fades away eventually. As we age, our eyes are not as strong, our ears are not as strong, our bodies are not as strong, and so on. So understanding the principle of the impermanence of the form aggregate, which is dependent upon the aggregation or the accumulation of the four great elements, meaning if the four great elements start to dissipate, so does that form aggregate. So if you start to see it in this way, then we know that form aggregate is actually dependently arisen which means that being dependently arisen, when you take away the causes and conditions, it is subject to change. It will either disappear or it will transform into something else. And that is why we say it is impermanent. Being impermanent, it is subject to suffering. That which is impermanent is suffering, ultimately. Even if it is a pleasurable form that your eye makes contact with, even if it's the most beautiful object in the world that you see, it is still impermanent and therefore when it changes, it is liable to cause suffering. No matter how much happiness it gives you in this moment, it will change and therefore it is subject to suffering. Now when we talk about anatta, what does that mean, anatta? It actually means, or comes from the Sanskrit, anatman, atman. Atman means soul or self. Atman is that which is imperishable. So the Buddha never said that there is no self. But the Buddha also didn't say that there is a self. What the Buddha was referring to is he's saying, okay, during the time of the Buddha and prior to that, there's the idea of a soul, the Atma. Now, this Atma is understood as being permanent, as being imperishable, as being changeless, as being a source of happiness and the nature of all beings. So the Buddha says, okay, let's use that understanding of self as the touchstone, as the parameter to understand all of our other experiences in this world. If you take into account the form aggregate, you see that the form aggregate continues to change. It is dependent, not independent. 
meaning it is dependently arisen due to causes and conditions. But when that form aggregate starts to change, it will either cause us suffering, right? Or it will change and cause us happiness in that moment, but ultimately it changes again. It disappears and causes us suffering. So that which is impermanent and that which is liable to cause suffering, can it be understood as self, as Atma? No. Therefore, what the Buddha is saying is, anatta doesn't mean no self. Anatta means that which is not self. So taking the form aggregate, you realize this body is not me, not mine, not myself. My body or this table or this lamp or your body or the body of the devas, the body of the brahmalokas, the bodies of the hell beings, animals, all forms are not self. They are not me, not mine, or not myself. So that's the form aggregate. Then we have what's known as the feeling aggregate. What is feeling? Feeling comes from the word Vedana. Right? Veda, which means knowledge, to know something. So it is the experience of something. Vedana is an experience. This word feeling can give the confusion that it means that it's something emotional or hedonic. No. The hedonic idea of that experience as being painful or pleasant or neither painful nor pleasant is actually related to the perception aggregate, which we'll get to in a bit. But with the feeling aggregate, what it is, is any kind of experience that you have through any of the six sense bases. So what is feeling? Feeling is seeing. Feeling is hearing. Feeling is smelling. Feeling is tasting. Feeling is touching or experiencing. Feeling is thinking. But the feeling aggregate itself is dependently arisen. Dependently arisen by what? From what? Contact. What is contact? Contact is that process in which the sense base and the sense base object make contact, giving rise to a corresponding sense base consciousness. These three constitute as the sense base contact, which gives rise to some kind of an experience, the feeling. Understanding it in this way, we see that with feeling being dependently arisen through contact, when that contact ceases, in other words, we pay attention to something else, then that feeling or that experience also ceases. Therefore, it is understood as being impermanent. All feeling, all experience is impermanent. That which is impermanent, if it is a pleasant feeling, if it is a feeling that causes joy and happiness, when it fades away, what does it leave in its mark? Suffering, dukkha. Therefore, all experience, all feeling, whether it's the feeling of eating and enjoying your favorite piece of food, or being in the most super mundane state of a jhana, being in the highest levels of meditation or enjoying just sitting in silence. All of that is feeling. All of that is experience. And therefore, 
it is liable to change, therefore suffering, and therefore not me, not mine, not myself. Now, what is Nibbana? Because Nibbana is the Nibbana Dhatu, which is what the mind makes contact with. So in that sense, Nibbana can be seen as an object, but it can also be seen as a process that the mind experiences as a feeling as a result of making contact with it. But Nibbana itself is not to be seen as an experience. So, you know, when somebody asks Sariputta that you seem quite happy, why is it that you are happy? And he says, because I have no feeling. There are no feelings present right now. And that is Nibbana, right? That is Vedana Nirodha, Bhava Nirodha, Tanha Nirodha, and so on. And so the other person asks Sariputta, but then how could that be considered happiness? How could that be considered blissful? He said, it is because there is no feeling that it is blissful, meaning because it is unconditioned. There is no experience going on. That's why it's blissful. So any experience that you have should be seen as what it act, for what it actually is, which is it is impermanent, liable to change, liable to cause suffering, and therefore not me, not mine, not myself. This understanding alone for all experience, which means all experience that you're having, if you see it as a full experience, as something that you fully engage with without the sense of I. So in other words, there is just the feeling then there is no suffering. There is the wonderful sutta that is the Bhaiya Sutta, right? Where Bhaiya goes to the Buddha and asks the Buddha, give me a discourse that can make me understand the cessation of suffering very quickly. And what does the Buddha say? Come back later, I'm on my lunch break. And so Bhaiya asks him two more times, and as it would be when you ask the Buddha for something for something three times, he's bound to give it to you. So what does the Buddha say? Bhaiya, you should understand it in this way. In the seeing, there is only the seen. In the hearing, there is only the heard. In the sense, there is only the sensed. In the cognizing, there is only the cognized. When, Bhaiya, there is no you in that, then there is no you by that. When there is no you by that, then there is no you after that. Just this is the end of suffering. In other words, all the experience that you're having, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking, if you do not implant a sense of I into it, then no suffering will arise. Do not take any experience personally. Don't take any experience as me, mine, or myself. Once you see this, then all experience is fading away without any kind of craving hooked into it, any kind of clinging hooked onto it, any kind of being hooked onto it, which can lead to birth of further karmic action and therefore lead to further suffering. 
when you understand this principle alone, that in itself, right? When you have unmuddled mindfulness of the present moment, this is what it means. Mindfulness of the present moment means that you're experiencing everything as it is without projecting I onto it, without saying, this is me, this is mine, this is myself. It is just an experience. It is just a process. When you see it in this way, then you are free of all suffering. That is the key. So then you have tied to that feeling what is known as perception. Perception comes from the word sanya. What does sanya mean? Sanya means to, to recognize something, to recognize something. So the first time you see the color red, you cognize it, you understand it, and you'll learn that this is what is known as the color red. By labeling it the color red, now it is in your memory. Being in your memory, every time you see the color red, you perceive it as red. Likewise, with everything else that you've learned. So perception is rooted in memory and concepts. Perception is that which labels things. Perception can lead to suffering. The perception of anything can lead to suffering. Why? Because perception is tied to feeling. And feeling is dependent upon contact. When that contact changes, so does that feeling. When that feeling changes, so does that perception. Your memories themselves are impermanent. They are liable to change depending upon your mood and your mindset. You might have a bad memory, but if you are in an uplifted mood and you think back on that memory, you might be more forgiving about it, more accepting of it. You might have a good memory, but you might be in a bad mood. And you think back on that good memory, you might try to look at all the bad little things that you could bring down from that memory. So memory and perception, these are closely linked, right? Perception comes from that memory. And if memory changes, so does perception. Perception, therefore, is impermanent. And when it changes, it is liable to cause suffering. Our memories are not our own. No matter how personal they seem, no matter how emotional they are, no matter how concrete they feel, they are not ours. Memories are just experiences. Memories are just the thinking process of the mind coming about. And for us to say that it is a pleasant memory, that it is a painful memory, or it's a neutral memory, is that process of perception. So feeling is just experience. That which says that that feeling is painful, pleasant, or neutral is perception. So perception is always changing, all the time, right? Because of that, we can't say that perception is me, mine, or myself. Therefore, perception is not self. Then we come into what's known as formations. Formations come from the word sankhara. So sankhara, so sun is like S-A-N. Sun is the, the extreme form of something or added upon. 
and kara is a process of making. So sankara means to cook up something. It is the process of preparing something. So these are percolations, formations, mental constructs that come about in the mind. So these sankaras are threefold. We have the bodily sankaras, we have the verbal sankaras, and we have the mental sankaras. Bodily sankaras essentially are to do with inhalation and exhalation, with the processes of the body. When we intend to move in some way, or breathe, or breathe out, breathe in, or breathe out, that is facilitated through the bodily formations. Verbal formations allow us to think and examine, examine something. So verbal formations allow us to think and examine and then break out into speech. So for example, you want to say something to someone, there's a process of reflection of what should I say to this person? How should I say it to this person? All of this is facilitated through verbal formations. Then you break out into speech and you say what it is what you want to say. Mental formations allow us to feel and perceive. Whether that feeling is to see, to hear, to smell, to taste, to touch, or to think, all of those are facilitated through mental formations. Because ultimately, whatever it is you are receiving in terms of sensory data, all of that then comes into the central database, which is the mind which then takes that and interprets it as perception and provides some kind of an experience. That is why mind is chief. Mind is the forerunner of all states. Therefore, mental formations facilitate the processes of feeling and perception. Formations are dependent or interdependent with choices that we make in every given moment. They are interdependent with the inclinations that we have, the intentions we have. So if our intentions are generally wholesome, then the formations that continue to arise are generally wholesome. If the intentions are generally unwholesome, then the formations that are arise are generally unwholesome. But that doesn't mean that just because they arise, we automatically go in that particular direction. Because of new information, such as the Dhamma and understanding of Sila and so on, we can say, this doesn't align with my understanding of the Dhamma. I am going to, in that moment, make the choice to let go of the unwholesome and replace it with the wholesome. Every time you do that, you are grinding away at the unwholesome formations and replacing that with wholesome formations. At the level of the brain, what that means is you are pruning the synapses that cause you to make the almost automatic choice towards an unwholesome state. And you are strengthening certain synapses that are creating new synapses that allow you to start to incline towards the wholesome. So the idea here is, or the question that would arise is, do we have free will or do we not? No, we do not. We do not have free will. Every intention that is there is always conditioned 
by some kind of factor. I'm being intentionally silent here because I want that to sink in. You do not have free will. What you do have is free won't. <laughs> Which means what you will not do. Right? Because you always have the choice in every moment based on the conditions that are present to say in the very, very last moment to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to change. I'm going to do something else. So what you do have is a conditioned intention, a conditioned will, conditioned by various factors, environmental factors, behavioral factors, genetic factors, things that you've learned from your parents, to things that you've learned from your grandparents, things that you see out in society, things that you've seen on television, and so on and so forth. All of these things, along with you know, evolutionary psychology and so on, all of that has an effect on the choices that you make in every present moment. However, there is that part of the mind that is able to say, I'm choosing not to do this based on new information, based on your understanding of what seems wholesome and what seems unwholesome. So formations continue to change dependent upon choices we make in every given moment. And that is why formations are also known as the carriers of karma. That is to say, they are karmic facilitators. There is a contact that arises with the external world. This feeds back into the mind to bring up certain formations that allow us to experience the world because of that karma in a certain way. In that process, at that point of experience, we now have the choice to say, this experience is me, mine, or myself, and take it personally and crave more for it. Or we can choose to let go of taking it personally and allow that process to dissipate. So what does this mean? Everything from ignorance all the way down to experience, all of that is inherited karma. It is old karma that arises dependent upon choices we've made in the past. Now, we can choose by taking it personal to crave more for it, to have aversion towards it, or to identify with it, and then cling to that and make rationales for why we think we want it, or why we think we don't want it, or why we identify with it, which then gives rise to becoming, which is, I am this, right? It's the habitual tendencies that then incline your mind towards a certain karmic choice that further propagates that particular karma, that further prop propagates that, further, uh, that particular kind of suffering. So that choice in every moment is present in where you can either say, I'm choosing to see this as impersonal, and letting it go and accepting things as they are, or I'm choosing to hold on to it, wanting to change the present moment, cling to it and cause myself more and more suffering. But this is all 
facilitated through mindfulness. Awareness of things as they are right now, right here, in the present moment. Once you have that, and with all of the other tools that you are cultivating through the meditation practice, using right effort, using the four R's or the six R's, whatever you want to call them, this all is present for you, available to you in that moment. And if you just give a pause in that moment before reacting, this gives rise to the response towards what is happening instead of reacting to the situation. Every time we have reactivity to a situation, every time we react in a way that causes us to cling further, we are causing more suffering. But if we have that pause that gives time for the mind or the capacities of the mind that have wisdom and compassion to arise, to be able to say, no, this is not the right choice, or no, I should not do it this way, or this is what I should be doing, or this seems most appropriate in this particular instance. So neuroscientifically, that means that you're allowing some time for your prefrontal cortex, your executive decision-making process, to come into alignment so that it can make the proper decisions rather than being reactive. So this is the react versus response that's happening in every given moment. This is how the mechanisms allow formations to continue to change. Therefore, our choices are not our own. Our choices are not me, mine, or myself. And formations that facilitate that, those choices are not me, not mine, not myself. And karma itself is not me, not mine, not myself. Yes, in the morning you say, I am the inheritor of my karma, karma belongs to me, and all of these things. This is to make you more responsible. But at, in the absolute ultimate sense of the understanding, karma itself is impersonal, not to be taken as me, mine, or myself. Finally, we come to awareness, or vijnana, or consciousness. Vijnana, so the word jnana means, again, to know or to cognize the knowledge of something. V is the division of something. So the consciousness here that we're talking about, the awareness here that we're talking about, is divided by or divided between the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. So there is the eye consciousness, the ear consciousness, the nose consciousness, the tongue consciousness, the body consciousness, and the mind consciousness. So that consciousness is essentially facilitated through our ability to pay attention to something. If I, if I tell you all to look at this particular finger, all of your attention is on this finger. So your eye is making contact with the finger and there is a corresponding eye consciousness dependent upon that. If I tell you to pay attention to the stove, now your attention is moved there, right? Your attention moving there, the consciousness dependent upon the eye and the finger has ceased, has dissipated. And a new consciousness has arisen dependent upon your eye making contact with the stove. So consciousness changes dependent upon the placement of your attention, where you place your attention.
So the process of consciousness is facilitated through the process of paying attention. That is why when we talk about the meditation, your attention wavers and goes to a hindrance, which means now there is no longer consciousness of loving kindness or whatever the object of meditation is. Now there is a consciousness dependent upon making contact with the hindrance. But that hindrance being an experience, being a feeling is old karma. How do you choose to deal with it? Do you fight it? Do you hold on to it? Do you push it away? What do you do with it? Or do you accept it as it is in the present moment and choose to just let go of identifying with it and then return back to your object, which means now the attention dissipates from the hindrance and comes back to the object. So all consciousness arises dependent upon its fuel, that fuel being any kind of an experience that experience being facilitated through any kind of contact. When you see consciousness dependently arisen, then you understand that consciousness is also impermanent. If you have that experience in infinite consciousness, then you will see it for yourself, the arising and passing away of infinite consciousnesses, right? Or contact going on over and over and over. Seeing that, you see that it is tiresome, and therefore dukkha. Seeing that, you see there is no controller here, and therefore it is impersonal. It is not me, it is not mine, it is not myself. So these five aggregates, when they are explored in this way, when they are understood in this way, the mind becomes disenchanted with them. What does it mean to be disenchanted with something? What does enchantment mean? Enchantment means to be, to be caught up in something, right? To believe in the magic tricks, to get caught up in the magician's tricks, right? But disenchantment means now I see you for what you actually are. You are not me, you are not mine, you are not myself. This is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. This leads to that disenchantment, which means no matter what arises, no matter how much formation arises in the meditation, no matter all the different activities that are happening around you, you remain disenchanted from them. You are no longer interested in them. You are no longer caught up by them. Right? You have had enough of them. This disenchantment leads to dispassion. Dispassion means no more passion. There is no more desire for that particular experience or for that particular state. The mind is in a bubble, remains completely unaffected by whatever is occurring, by whatever is arising, by whatever is passing away. That dispassion then leads to vimutti which is the liberation of mind in that moment, the cessation of all suffering. So when you start to experience the five aggregates in this way, that doesn't mean you have to investigate only. That doesn't mean you have to analyze only. That doesn't mean you have to reflect on it only. That is a fool's errand because you keep doing that and all you're doing is engaging in the thinking mind. That's all you're doing. It's more about seeing, for it, seeing it for what it actually is in every moment and understanding, oh, 
there is a separation point here. It is not me. It is not mine. It is not myself. Because if you say it by rote, oh, this is not me and this is not mine, this is not myself, it's just a mantra in your mind. It's not going to get you anywhere. But if you actually see it just being available to the moment, then you are able to let go. And in letting go, you have liberation in that moment. So this is the way to see the five aggregates. This is the way to detach the clinging in relation to the five aggregates. What does it mean when we say the clinging in relation to the five aggregates? Because that is a question that is asked in the suttas. Is the clinging the same as the five aggregates or is the clinging different from the five aggregates? And the answer is it's neither the same nor different. Because if it was the same, if you cease clinging, you cease the aggregates. But if it was different, then it means that once you cease the clinging, then the aggregates continue on their own. In reality, the clinging is in relation to what the mind attaches the sense of self to. In terms of, it says, these aggregates are either mine, or these aggregates are me, or I am in these aggregates, or I am separate to these aggregates, right? So that is the five aggregates multiplied by the four different kinds of self-views, which are the 20 different self-views. So that is the clinging that we're talking about, right? So the, the five aggregates themselves are impersonal. So too is the clinging. But the clinging itself needs to be weeded out. Once the clinging is weeded out, then you see the five aggregates for what they actually are. Now there is no more taking things personally. Now there is no more being, because that is another question. When we talk about being, how do you define a being? And the Buddha says, whenever there is some karmic engagement or whenever there is an identification with one or more of the five aggregates, there is said to be being. So the destruction of being, the letting go and extinguishment of being is the letting go of taking the aggregates personally. So just this understanding will liberate the mind. But in order for that understanding to arise, it requires the Eightfold Path, which includes Samadhi, which includes right collectedness, going through the jhanas and seeing for yourself how this process works. This is why when I say the mind is your teacher, it means that your mind is showing you how this process works. You have to just be open and observe, like a scientist, this is what's going on. But that doesn't mean that you're observing from the sense of an observer. There is only observing happening. Going back to the Bhaiya Sutta, there is no meditator that's there. There is only the process of meditation happening. So this is what is meant by metacognition. There is the awareness, there is a space given to the process of meditation. The mind is observing the mind meditating. The mind is observing the mind getting distracted. The mind is observing the mind six Ring and coming back. The mind is observing the mind going into this jhana. The mind is experiencing the mind seeing loving kindness and so on and so forth. If you create that space, 
then you will have true progress. Otherwise, you will get stuck and attached to which jhana am I in? What jhana am I supposed to be in? All of these questions arise every time you take the practice personally. Every time you are outcome-driven in relation to the practice, that means you are taking it personally. Let go of that and just let the mind do its thing. Then the progress through the jhanas is at light speed. And before you know it, when you least expect it, the mind is liberated. Now, are there any questions? It's, it's such a, a fascinating teaching. Um, and uh, this sort of the thought of how does one approach that on a moment-to-moment -moment basis when it's so kind of counterintuitive to our conventional way of seeing the world? Uh, so I don't know. Um, let's say I'm thinking, you know, this is not me. This is not mine. Uh, and then uh, somebody steps on my foot and breaks my toe. And in that moment, um, my subjective experience will be, that's my foot, and you yeah. stepped on it. <laughs> so I, I, I'm kind of assuming that a, that a fully awakened being would, would experience you know, pain and, and shock, yeah. uh, and, but would not be going, that's my foot, and get off it, or I'm going to punch you. <laughs> um, so, so I, I mean, there are times when it's like, hey, that's my piece of chocolate. Yeah. And then it's like, what? And, and, and just hearing that could turn the mind around and there'd be like an experience of letting go of, of self. Um, but that's kind of like a winning the lottery or something in a certain way, right? So I wonder if you could just speak to, to how to approach this uh, on an ongoing basis. So a couple of things. Uh, in Majjhima Nikaya 22, the simile of the water snake, the Buddha actually addresses this. And what he says is, if you look at the grass outside, he's talking about, he says, and if someone were, to, someone were to burn up that grass, how would you feel about it? And they would say, we wouldn't feel anything about it because it's just grass. That's the same way you should see the five aggregates, he says. This is not mine, this is not me. So if it happens, it happens. But of course, subjective experience, it is painful. So how do you deal with it? That's where the two darts understanding comes to be. The first dart is the pain itself, the physical pain or whatever the experience is. The second dart is the implanting of I in relation to that pain and becoming uh, enamored or enchanted or uh, affected by that pain personally. So for the fully awakened being, they have the first dart. They are subject to pain, they're subject to all kinds of experiences. But there is no second dart which says, why did this happen to me? Why am I experiencing this? How dare they say that to me? And all of these things. The reactivity to the experience goes away. So I just had the image of a, you know, you're in a, a fender bender and you're about to get out and go, oh, too bad about that. Are, we, are you okay? But then the ambulance chaser shows up and says, 
that guy was in the wrong. We should sue that guy. And suddenly the mind goes off on the story. Right. It's kind of like that, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Thank you. I thought the free won't thing was interesting because that was what I was struggling with when I was trying to apply the don't do anything recommendation because it felt like I can either do as the mind is impulsing me to or I can veto that. So it was like, I got to do something either way. (laughs) I'm not supposed to do anything. So uh, interestingly, what... I don't know if I was applying this correctly, but I remembered your analogy of the flashlight. And then it's at the end, it's just pointing at nothing. And so when I was in quiet mind, I tried to apply that. And the way I thought of it is like, all right, I'm just going to try and point the flashlight in the same direction. So in terms of like doing something, that's that's what I did. I didn't do anything except for that. of just like, let me just try and keep my my attention on this in this same direction and then that worked yes yes okay. because you weren't looking at anything in particular it was just going in that direction but not in anything in particular yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing on that note after that um, well it's kind of gone away now but for, for for a while after that session it felt like I had that usually when I'm going through the jhanas, I'll have these different, especially in the later jhanas, I'll have these different points of tension in my head or in my neck or something, and then they go away when I finish the sitting. But then this time they were the, was still there, and it felt like I was still kind of in jhana, but it was mostly like head and neck tension. So yeah. I also get a lot of tension in the eyes. Yeah. I think I know what you're going to say, but do you have any other tips on, <laughs> on, on how to not get so much tension? <laughs> um, so if I understand what you're saying, I'll make sure I understand this correctly. You're saying that when you're in the jhana, you're experiencing pain. Uh, not, not pain. It's just, it's just tension. Like, like, especially when I was moving towards signless felt like there was a bunch of pressure building up in my eye it didn't really hurt it was just concerning right uh, and then when you came out of it was the pressure still there actually no when I went into signless then it kind of disappeared and it felt like I didn't have any eyes yeah there's your answer there okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just gotta go keep going keep going you know it, it could be meditation it could be mental like it's it's a, it's a psychosomatic experience. It's mm. not necessarily physical. Uh-huh. Okay. Kind of like an anticipation yeah. thing or something like that? Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry. I... Missed the first part, sorry, very first part. Uh, you said that Anatta is, the, the Buddha didn't say uh, there's no. Yeah, the Buddha didn't 
didn't say that there is no self. No self. But he also didn't say that there is a self. What he said is that every experience that we have, which is conditioned, is not self. It doesn't belong to me, mine, or myself. Ah, 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 I see. Thank you. I kind of missed the chocolate cake example. <laughs> yeah. Um, now I'm wondering whether if you can repeat that, seeing the chocolate and all the way through, but come back with how that triggers you to pick up that chocolate cake. Watch the videos, you'll see that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One other question. When I'm, uh, when I'm thinking about it, and I'm not, I'm just thinking about it, and I'm not in meditation, I have this fear that uh, if I achieve some level of awakening, then I'll be totally different. I'll lose all my aspirations, and I'll I'll just kind of throw away my career and all that. But then when I'm meditating, none of that really pops up. Yeah. So is it is it do I need to worry about it, or should I do something about it, or can I just forget it? Yeah, you think about all of those thoughts that arise. What are they actually? They're just thoughts. They're thoughts arising from a sense of identity. It's saying that if this happens, then I lose my identity. But when you're in meditation, all of those thoughts cease naturally because your mind is very collected. So those thoughts are arising due to a mind that might not be collected in that moment. And as all of these worries due to or stemming from conceit, the image of the self. But if you take that away, and you just continue meditating. Like I said, you can't accidentally become fully awakened, right? Mm. So you let go, you let go, you let go. But if there's still something that's still being held on to, and it will prevent you from going further. But you think about how this process works and what it changes. What it does is, as you get closer and closer to full, being fully awakened, your life starts to become supportive of the Dhamma one way or the other. Like maybe once you become a stream enter, you become more generous towards monastics or you become more generous towards causes in relation to the Dhamma. When you become a, a, a Sakadagami, maybe you become a little bit more interested in listening to more Dhamma talks and so on. When you become an Anagami, maybe that's when you choose to actually become a meditation guide or something, you know? Or maybe you incline your career towards meditation, you incline your career towards how you can facilitate people to know more about you know, Buddhism or the Dhamma. And uh, when you become fully awakened, you don't want to do anything at all. So, you know, that's why I say being a f fully awakened person means that you are, you are the ultimate slacker. <laughs> right? Nothing wrong in it. It's wrong because society says it's wrong. It's wrong because the way this world has been built says you have to be a contributive factor towards society. Mm -hmm. But once you disengage with samsara, then when you re-engage with samsara, you do it from, from a way that is beneficial to samsara. Mm -hmm. 
okay. and more effective and efficient in being beneficial to samsara. Okay. Thank you. One other thing, I, I feel like you mentioned this before, you were saying that uh, because there can be a cessation that doesn't lead to a, a path or achievement, so then in order to kind of like try and have a cessation that does, you you sort of, you, you like set an intention when you're in the signless state or like right before, or you make the determination to see the... Um, the links of dependent origination. I'm just trying to remember what that was. Um, well, I think this could have been in relation to the attainment of being able to go into cessation whenever you want. I don't know if that was related to the links of dependent origination. I have to really think about that. Um, or, or maybe it was it was something about uh, you know when you've had an attainment because then you. Oh. See the links of dependent origination. Yes, is that accurate? Yeah. Okay. So, so the idea is that when you either you will see the links of dependent origination, or even afterwards you have better clarity on how dependent origination works. So, it's like for some people, for example, one person had a wonderful cessation experience. Nothing happened, and then they were walking into the bathroom, and when they came out, ready to go to bed. Um, it all just appeared to them. Huh. Links of dependent origination. So there could be a little bit of a delay too. But seeing the links and understanding dependent origination is definitely a surefire way of knowing whether somebody's had a path of fruition. Okay, thank you. Um, for an unawakened being, does Sankara get carried from birth to birth? Not all sankharas, it depends upon what causes and conditions are present. So some sankharas can remain dormant for eons before they are awakened due to a certain kind of cause and condition. That's how karma works. You think about karma like different kinds of seeds. You have an apple seed, you have an orange seed, you have a watermelon seed. And by the nature of that particular seed, it will germinate at a certain point in time and it will come to fruition at a certain moment. But if there's not enough water being given to the apple seed, or not enough sunshine being given to the orange seed, but everything is proper in its right way for the watermelon seed, then the apple seed might grow slower, or might not grow at all. The orange might grow slower, or not at all, but the watermelon will come into full fruition. In the same way, that works for karma, and uh, by extension, for sankharas. And can you please comment on how does that, like the, the mechanism of how that happens from one birth to another? Like what, you know, um, as you mentioned, the, the, the seeds, like say, um, symbolically speaking, that they get carried into the next birth, but through what? Through craving. When there's any kind of attachment or identification in that moment, it will awaken or uh, activate certain formations which will give rise to a corresponding consciousness which then transfers all of that into the next life. Uh, so in between birth that process can happen there can before be craving. And, mm. No, before the death of that being mm. at that moment of death that's that reaction that that being has at that moment of death 
is what determines what formations come into be and what formations are taken into the next birth. So that final moment seems to be crucial. Yes. So like even the person might have done a lot of practice and they have say say 60% you know of 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 um their habitual tendency tend to be wholesome but in that final moment that arises the unwholesome and then that kind of determines the so that is why if you get to stream entry then you don't have to worry about it there's a guy named mahanama who uh, spoke to the buddha and says i'm very worried about something the buddha said what he said you know what if in my final moments uh, my mind inclines towards the whole unwholesome and i go to hell and the Buddha said, for someone who is a stream enter, they have closed off all formations that can lead to a lower realm. So their mind will always incline towards something wholesome. So the security is in entering the stream. So does that mean for, um, so for stream entra to confirm their stream entra in their day-to-day -day life, their mind wouldn't incline to anything unwholesome. No, it doesn't. That's not what it means. Okay. It means that they will maybe take something personally for some time, but because of the intelligence of the Dhamma, the wisdom of the Dhamma, they will let go of it. They'll say, no, this doesn't serve me, so I'm choosing to let go of taking this personally in this moment. So they will respond wholesomely. Okay. Thank you. Um, just to clarify, <clears throat> have you ever encountered uh, an anagami who uh, said, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish I would have stayed a Sakuragami or, or a, a, a Sotapanna yeah. so that I could continue to enjoy the things that I enjoyed back then. Have you ever met anyone like that? No. Thank you. No regrets. <laughs> That's just a cross-examination. Cross Why didn't you take the blue pill? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I'm a little concerned with the, with the language of, of sla slacker. Just because someone who might encounter this without any background information might think, oh, oh, what, they're just a bunch of lazy people. And I mean, my experience has been that the more awakened somebody appears to be, the more incredibly valuable their existence and the activities they do are, and also the efficiency uh, of the activity, uh, and, and in, in both in terms of getting a lot done, but also in terms of the outcomes, is just uh, exponentially better than, um, you know, uh, anybody who's done uh, time management courses or something, that, or works really hard, or has a good work ethic, and so on. So I just wanted to, to bounce that off you. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, when I say slacker, I really, of course, it's tongue-in-cheek, but really what it's referring to is that they, they don't get invested in things that other people might get invested into, right? And so, such a person would be working off of intuition all the time, which means they allow intuition to guide what's going on, which makes it that much more efficient and that much more valuable to people, mm -hmm. or to samsara, because they're not invested in the awakening of other beings. They're not motivated in having 
a certain number of followers. They're not motivated in propagating the Dhamma. That's what it means when they're sluggers. <laughs> they're not evangelists. <laughs> but uh, when they do find themselves in situations where people want to know about the Dhamma, if it's appropriate or not, and they teach or they, they like the path or whatever it is, it's that much more effective. Thank you. I just want to say, John, those are only the people you've met. <laughs> or you think you've met. <laughs> what you about never, the ones that are really? You can never be true, or truly sure. <laughs> what's, what's my uh, evaluation of a slacker? Was <laughs> 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 it? Do you have a question? I, I was just going to ask. Wasn't there something or other Buddha who didn't actually want to teach anybody? And yeah, just... that's the uh, Pacheka Buddhas. Okay. Yeah, they're the Buddhas who basically stay in the cave, stay in the, stay in the forest, and don't actually teach the Dhamma. They just chill. They just chill. slack. They slack. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I have a question, very beginner, stupid question, I'm sorry. Uh, my this this time you were talk my understanding is about five aggregates and uh happiness and uh, actually i have some hesi hesitate to have loving kindness um, uh, idea uh, while in uh, dwelling the meditation because i say okay may i be happy okay but actually I know according to the Dharma, there is no me. <laughs> and uh, actually, my, what I will get, uh, the happiness that I will get from this meditation is different from what actually my mind wants. So I'm feeling I'm kind of lying. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so um, I have some hesitation, but one of them would be such kind of thing. <laughs> Do you have some recommendation? Yeah, so uh, one of the things you have to understand is when we say happiness, right, there is an idea of happiness. But when you come to true happiness, it is not within the realm of concepts that are there in the mind. So you can only engage in concepts. Your mind can only engage in the idea of what happiness means. Happiness can mean an exuberant joy. Happiness can mean satisfaction and contentment and tranquility and serenity and all of it. So everybody's definition of happiness can be whatever it is. And that's fine. May all beings ha be happy is your definition of what happiness is. The ultimate happiness, which is Nibbana, cannot be defined. It is undefined, undefinable. It can only be pointed to by certain concepts that only point to you know the borders of that ultimate happiness. So you're not lying to yourself. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, on the note of the use of language, um, the I know like it's being mentioned. Um, 
quite a bit like in the Dharma teachings, um, the right view, right understanding, the word right. Um, I've also read um, Dharma books that like the original meaning of the Pali word of that is actually not exactly, like doesn't exactly mean right. And I was just sort of reflecting on the, 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 the word right might have a connotation of, you know, this being the only way and then everything else is wrong. What's, um, what's your, um, yeah, can you please comment on that? But that is true according to the Dhamma. This is the only way. Does the original Pali word have other meaning or that's, that's the sort of direct translation? So sama can mean wholesome, sama can mean ethical, sama can mean effective, sama can mean harmonious. But when the Buddha says right, it comes from the word ritta, actually, in Proto-Indo-European or Sanskrit, ritta means that which is uh, like the Tao, you know, that which is in unit, unison with everything, harmonious with everything. So when we say right, think about the word right. When we're saying right, we're not saying it is the only thing. We're saying it's right because it is appropriate for our benefit and the benefit of others. So sama can mean beneficial. There's a beneficial view. There's a beneficial intention. There's a beneficial speech. There's beneficial action. There's beneficial mindfulness. There's beneficial effort. There's beneficial livelihood. So right and wrong doesn't mean, uh, you know, it is like absolute. Although the intention was to say that it is absolute. Because there is an absolute right and there is an absolute wrong. There's no gr uh, gray area in terms of the ethics of it. Either you kill or you don't kill. Either you steal or you don't steal. Either you lie or you don't lie. Either you cheat or you don't cheat. Either you have a drink or you don't have a drink. There can't be, you know, it's like uh, that old Seinfeld joke about, uh, the, what is that, uh, do you know, the laundry? Either it's it's dry or it's not dry. <laughs> There's no in-between. <laughs> Thank you. You can't get a little bit pregnant. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'm, I'm, now I'm going to my list because I have a few. Um, so I have a very, well, first I have sort of an easy question. Um, just because uh, this affected me personally, uh, the bodhisattva vow and the idea that if one has a bodhisattva vow, then uh, that could be an obstacle to... Uh, uh, experiencing, uh, you know, for, um, attainments in this life, and so I've heard I've heard two answers from you about that, and I'd like to just sort of hear them together at once. What were the two answers? You remember? Yeah. So one was that well, in order to actually have an effective bodhisattva vow, one has to take the vow within the uh, in the presence of a living Buddha, right? Yeah. And I think the Buddha also has to make a prediction that that will be true. Yeah. Uh, and the second was. Uh, It'll be. It, it can be an obstacle if you make it an obstacle. Right. So that that second one is is uh, interesting to me because, uh, and I think it speaks a little bit to Joseph's question. Uh, thoughts that we have that could prevent us from progressing because we have a view about ourselves or our practice that uh, 
just doesn't include that, that ability to awaken. People who believe they can't awaken, right. even though they try really hard. Yeah. I think uh, uh, related to that is the, the bodhicitta, right? Mm -hmm. The bodhicitta is the um, impulse to, towards awakening. And I think this is a matter of semantics and understanding of what bodhisattva vow actually means. Because I think one interpretation is that it means that I will not be awakened until all beings are awakened. But I don't know if that's actually the vow. Perhaps it's a different vow. Because in other traditions, the vow is, I will strive for my awakening and help others in the attainment of their awakening. I think that's a more sensible vow. Uh, because the Buddha himself, if he was a Bodhisattva before he became a Buddha, would have had to wait until all of samsara was fully awakened and then become awakened. And if that's the case, what's the point of becoming a Buddha? Hmm. So, uh, also that, that other first part of it, I, I tend to also see in that way, which is that you have to be in, in the presence of a living Buddha. And the Buddha has to be able to see if you have the capacity to actually go all the way and then say, yes, it can be done. So I think the bodhisattva vows that are done in certain traditions could be seen as bodhicitta, which is the impulse or the dedication for the mind towards awakening. That might be the better way to look at it. Thank you. I heard one person say that it's actually... We're taking this all too literary, literally, and it's kind of poetry. Like it's the heart's longing to help right. that makes this grandiose statement right. that that just draws us towards. Yeah. Does that reflect your? I think that's a good way say. of looking at it too, because it's like, yeah, I would like other beings to also be happy and awakened, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I think adding the idea that before other beings can, before I'm awakened, I will make sure other beings awaken. That comes from the ego. That's a big, you know, uh, hubristic statement. So. Thank you. Um, and uh, this is uh, sort of uh, pertaining to what you mentioned a, a bit ago. Uh, the idea that, like, there's a, there can be, um, you know, like a, an attainment and like the the fruition, um, but then there seems to be a kind of fruiting, as Laurie was calling it in which uh, like over a period of you know weeks months maybe year, i don't know years could be uh, there's an uh, an in, not even an integration but there's a kind of the activation of those qualities uh, from that attainment so that one might realize like a sila is coming at one in a completely new way that that wasn't there before and that takes time to actually manifest so this idea of attainment of like um, it's, it sounds almost like a gradual path in a way in the sense of yeah and attainment even being uh, happening over time. Could you speak a bit to that? Yeah, I think uh, that's very valid because in the suttas also it talks about the gradual process of awakening, right? So the gradual, like, coming to the path means that you're walking on the path towards arahatship, right? Or once you attain arahatship, there's a fruition that goes on or any of the different paths. So there is a walking, which is the actual process of uh, attaining, and then being attained, which is the fruition. And that can happen immediately, like there can be a path and then there can be a fruition. But general examples in the suttas talk about, or I should say major examples, or most examples, are of a gradual kind of awakening. 
a mm. gradual kind of process. Mm. That's why when you look at Upanisha Sutta, you have the different kinds of uh, factors that lead to that liberation. But it's not a one one stop shop. It's like you have to do that, and then there's another level that you have to uncover, and another level mm. you have to uncover. But in terms of the fruiting aspect, I think when you talk about like sila or cultivating more samadhi, that happens due to causes and conditions. Mm. So you might have the fruition, which is the destruction of the taints right. and so on. Right. But uh, the cultivation of psychic powers, for example, yes. might be something else. Or the cultivation of certain meditative attainments might be something else. Mm -hmm. So those are all um, practical processes that you can, um, you can cultivate. But is it necessary? Well, it's, it's added on to it. So. Thank you. Thanks. I can't remember if it's um, uh, at the Sotapanna level or further. There's um, I vaguely recall, um, if I remember correctly, that 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 one becomes um, not attached to the ritual rites and rituals, and um, including does that also including precepts? No, precepts are not rites and rituals. Right. Okay. So rites and rituals are with the idea that. Uh, you know, like, I'm going to pray to this deity for this much money, or I'm going to light this incense with the hope of pleasing this deity, or I'm carrying this uh, lucky charm with me because it's going to help me in my practice or something. Those are the kinds of rites and rituals. Animal sacrifices, rites and rituals. So precepts, taking precepts, is not a rite and ritual. It is a practice. It is part of Siva Samadhi Pani. So the cultivation of precepts means that when you start off the day with taking precepts, it means that you are making a commitment to be wholesome all the time. That's what it is. Okay. Did you have something? <clears throat> I have a story that I, I heard about uh, recently. Um, it was to to the point of do we do we practice now or do we wait and practice later? There was a young couple that met and and they and they both became Buddhist together, um, and they decided, well, you know, we'd like to ordain, but wouldn't it be kind of fun to have a married life for a while? So they got married and they were very very happy together, and they you know you know meditated and 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 all of that, and after three and a half years, the wife died. And then the husband ended up a year later going ahead and and ordaining. But his wife, we don't know whether she'll ever have another chance in the human realm to see the Dhamma. It's just a cautionary tale. You take your chances when you gamble like that, I think. And it's a choice you have to make.
Protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sounds like a substance. 